0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pikolsky. Today we are going to dive into the truth behind insulin, the truth behind macros the truth behind how ultimately the body handles nutrients. Dr. Benjamin Bickman joins me again, one of my favorite guests of all time, to dispel common myths around nutrition, to dispel common myths around insulin, glucose, fat metabolism, and so much more. Dr. Bickman is a professor of metabolism at Brigham Young University, and just an absolute wealth of information of a man. This is, as I say, one of my favorite podcasts for myth-breaking. Got a lot of people out there who are spreading misinformation, and Dr. Bickman is uniquely qualified to be ultimately speaking on this topic, perhaps one of the best experts in the world when it comes to metabolism, and you're going to want to listen to every minute of this podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Ned. If you're not already taking CBD, NED CBD products have over 2,000 five-star reviews, and they're working with some incredible research teams to optimize their product um, Ned has been a product that I've recently been adding to my repertoire just to see what it's doing ultimately to systemic inflammation, maybe to improve sleep a little bit. If you're someone who uh, is interested in optimizing stress levels, Ned ultimately has incredibly high quality CBD products that with um, you know, full spectrum CBD derived from hemp. So there's actually no THC for those people out there who are concerned with maybe the psychoactive effects of cannabis. And I'm being honest, I- I never was a cannabis user, never was a fan of it. I've tried it, but never been a great fan of it. So personally, CBD in my eyes has to be in the absence of THC. I just don't like the way I feel on, CB- on THC. Now, I think there could be value in THC, but in general, uh, I like to stick with um, CBD products that uh, are absent of THC and NED meets all the highest quality standards that exist. And you guys can head over to Hello Ned. H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash muscle to get hooked up with 15% off. That's helloned.com slash muscle and use the code muscle at checkout to get hooked up with 15% off. And when you're choosing your C B D product, it's very important to find the highest quality standards for extraction. So we can get a high quality raw, which many companies are not, by the way. They're getting again, think about it, like any vegetable, you wouldn't want your vegetables grown in an environment that ultimately is suboptimal or the the uh, nutrients and foods they're getting, or maybe the pesticides they're getting are suboptimal. NED has the highest quality standard, both for production and extraction. If you don't know anything about extraction, extraction can be done with many different processes. Some of them are actually toxic using these solvents that ultimately are very, very toxic. And we want to avoid those things. And Ned um, is very transparent with the highest quality standards for extraction. So head over to helloned.com, use the code muscle to get hooked up with 15% off and enjoy the podcast with Ben Bickman. Dr. Benjamin Bickman, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast.
1: Yeah. Hey, brother, please call me Ben. Thanks for having me back on.
0: Uh, I love your uh, content. I love your research. I love your perspectives. And it's truly an honor and privilege to have you back on to help educate me and the listener. Um, I watch everything that you put out as often as I can. And I want to dig into all the conversation around metabolism, fat, insulin, all of it. So thank you once again for making the time. Oh,
1: my pleasure. Hey, Ben, nothing an old professor likes more than having a new class of students.
0: Yeah, it's true. And and you're so uh, eloquent in your speech and your delivery and, uh, so objective it seems. It seems like you're you're very good at removing uh, the subjective nature of human mind, right? Like removing the opinion as much as possible and uh, objectifying your conversation. Certainly, when you know what I see on social media, it's like, hey, here's what the data says, and that to me is so valuable because yeah. you know I'm really guilty of it too. Is like taking my opinion of things. Well, I mean, maybe my opinion's you know valuable, but you're so good at making it an objective. And um, I'd love to have us just kind of start the conversation with what's new in your world and and what's you've been working on. Because so any of the listeners, you've been on the podcast twice now, and uh, you know, every time it's like so much value. And I'm curious, what has been you know over the last six to twelve months, what's been the most relevant in your lab?
1: Yeah, yeah. So thanks, thanks again, Ben. That's that's awfully nice of you. Um, it, it is a fun thing being a scientist. It really is uh, where you get paid to be curious and there are not a lot of, there are not a lot of people who get that kind of job. Now you don't get paid that well, but you at least you get paid to be curious. So it's, it's very gratifying in that sense. And and there always is a sense of enthusiasm that comes with that because you never really know what you're going to learn, but it it is the death of science when we think that what we've learned is the end of it. Uh, uh, I'm making every attempt to state that very clearly and, and emphatically even, because I think that this is reflective of a larger problem that we see occurring now. Now, I don't want to get off topic, but my, my, my point in saying this is, just for everyone listening, to be always skeptical, always, always skeptical, uh, where science is this continual process of trying to discover truth. There are real things. there is absolute truths in this universe in which we live. actual you know laws and reactions uh, and the moment we think we know it all and we have these ardent claims of what we believe, we have in fact ironically turned our back on science now, having said all that i I have the great pleasure of studying um, human metabolism, and that is. I say that because it's so relevant right now. I, I sometimes sit back and wonder, Ben, and I think, how did I get on this path of studying this topic that is so relevant to the world in which we live? Because I, am an, I sit in this hallway of brilliant men and women. These are incredible scientists, and, and most people don't care what they study. I, I hate to say that any colleagues who listen to this later, I'm sorry for saying it that way, but it's, it's, it's interesting, but it's interesting in an ivory tower academic sense. And I, I, you know, when I first started studying insulin resistance and, and nutrient metabolism, I honestly thought I was only studying something that was relevant to understanding why obesity causes type two diabetes. And and my interest in that is another story, but I thought I was just studying type two diabetes. And then it was learning more and more of the pathogenic aspect of chronically elevated insulin that took me on a career path that I, I, it's either a series of fortunate accidents or it's some divine direction, but it's very gratifying regardless. Now, to answer your question explicitly, some of the work that we've been studying is um, familiar to anyone who's heard me speak before. Um, so I'll, maybe I'll just give a highlight of some of what I think is the coolest stuff. We are about to publish a paper looking at brain uh, bioenergetics. And bioenergetics is just the sexy word for studying how cells use energy. Um, And we are looking at this in the context of a rodent study where we can take out the brain and study it. But it's basically the effects of ketones in these middle-aged older animals and seeing how the mitochondrial uh, physiology has been altered. Uh, and, and basically we found that although the results are modest, they are significant and it is an increase in ATP production and a reduction in oxidative stress. So just continuing to build to this, build this model in which it appears more and more. And I'll state this kind of definitively. If the brain prefers any fuel, it is ketone very often. Informed people will say the brain prefers glucose, and I don't know of any evidence to suggest that's true. The most damning evidence against that view, against the view that glucose is the primary fuel, is in fact available in humans, not to mention my own data that we've published before and will continue to publish on. But we know that when humans have equal levels of ketones or glucose in their blood... Let's just say they were both at five millimolar, which would be very normal for glucose, but would be considered quite high for ketones because the average person has none. But when glucose and ketones are at the same level, the brain has shifted so dramatically to using ketones that as far as the brain's concerned, it's now using about two to one ketone to glucose, if not three to one. So there's a clear preference that when given equal chance from both fuels, the brain has shifted to rely dramatically more, two or three times more, on ketones than glucose. So that's one project we have going. That's a dissertation project of my, uh, my PhD student. And then I just had a master's student start in my lab. And her project is really pretty fascinating. It's working with one of my collaborators, Paul Reynolds, who is an air pollution Um, lung guy. He's a lung physiologist. And much of his research has looked at lung development and lung inflammation and things like COPD in response to inhaling pollutants. I'm not a lung guy. Um, Paul's not a metabolism guy. And so we're kind of coming together and looking at the effects of inhaled pollutants like diesel exhaust particles and how they accumulate in fat tissue. This is true. True story here, Ben. It sounds crazy. But these diesel exhaust particles accumulate in fat cells and slow the metabolic rate in the fat cell. And maybe I'll elaborate on this briefly. And then I I won't elaborate on any more projects just for the sake of time. But basically um, I'm sure people in the audience have heard me talk about mitochondrial coupling or uncoupling. And and maybe you've talked about this or it's come up uncoupling versus coupling. The best analogy is me invoking my old 1998 Subaru Outback. It's a five-speed manual transmission which I don't even have to lock the doors on because a college kid can't drive away in it anyway. They're not going to steal the car. They can't drive a stick shift. But when, when, uh, when the mitochondria are uncoupled, it's like I'm pressing the gas, but I have my foot on the clutch. And so I'm not going anywhere. The engine is revving, 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 but there's no actual work being pr- accomplished. That's uncoupled mitochondria. In contrast, very coupled mitochondria are when you've pressed the gas and your foot's off the clutch. And so now the engine is certainly running. We have RPMs, but it's translated into work. We're actually getting something done for the fuel that we're burning. So that's the other kind of the way of putting the fine point on it. Coupled mitochondria are burning the fuel they need to get work done, like producing ATP or, you know, in the case of a muscle, it's allowing the dynamic um, contraction, relaxation of a muscle. Uncoupled mitochondria the cells are burning energy, but for no reason. It just ends up producing heat, which is kind of the ultimate waste product of of energetics. Now, at the fat cell, what starts to happen is the diesel exhaust particles are shifting the mitochondria in the fat cells to be more tightly coupled. In other words, it's forcing fat cells to be more efficient with their energy. Now, someone will hear me say that and think, oh, well, that's a good thing. We want our mitochondria to be efficient well you want your muscle mitochondria to be efficient only wasting and only using energy they need you want your brain or neuron mitochondria to be efficient but if you're trying to lose weight or you want to have an easier time staying lean you do not want your mitochondria to be efficient you would rather they be inefficient you would rather them be revving through wasting energy for no good reason And then at any moment, you're burning more calories, which, of course, is going to make it easier and easier for the fat cells to be smaller, which is the key. Not that we lose fat cell number. We don't. It's just that the fat cells themselves shrink. So that's a pretty compelling idea. Of course, this is rodent work. It'd be difficult to do this in humans. It would be difficult to get approval to expose them to diesel exhaust. But um, the evidence so far in the rodent experiments is that diesel exhaust particle exposure in the animals is accumulating in the fat cells and, um, I would say, negatively affecting the metabolic effects in the fat cell, making the fat cell essentially more inclined to store energy rather than waste it.
0: That's, first of all, the fact that that's possible in rodents or humans is amazing, good to know. And I'm curious what your theory is as to why that's happening is, you know, I won't even speculate as to why, you know, I've got some thoughts, but I'm curious, like, is it just the body's desire to hang on to those toxins in the fat cells? Is that what yeah, you think yeah. is causing the income? Yeah. Of-
1: yeah. What a great question. In fact, Ben, I joke with my students that when they ask a student, when they ask the question "Why," I joke and say that's a divine question because only God knows, or only you know, Mother Nature, whatever you want to invoke, right. knows why the system is designed the way it is or evolved the way it is. Um, I can only answer how, hmm. um, which you know, w- which is that these individual particles actually get absorbed and stored in the fat cell and directly interact with the mitochondria. Now, <clears throat> if if I were to speculate on a why. I, I actually can't. There's no good reason for this to happen. I would just have to say there is no why. It's purely pathological. There's no sense to be made from this, which which is a cop-out, I, I admit. But um, we do know that fat cells are uniquely susceptible to storing molecules. I hate to invoke the word toxin because it's so over-invoked. It's so overused, like people blaming inflammation, in fact, it's funny that I say inflammation because that appears to be one of the critical mediators here. Basically, these little diesel exhaust particles will come to a cell surface and bind and activate a receptor. They can get incorporated in, but they will basically knock on a door that's an inflammation door on the fat cell. And then that process will result in a series of events leading to the, the accumulation of a type of fat called ceramides. And then ceramides start to, start to alter the mitochondrial function. So there's a a series of mediators in between, but for whatever reason, fat cells are uniquely susceptible to storing harmful molecules that we maybe could call toxins. And perhaps that's just because the fat cells are literally designed to store. They're built to store. And that's not like most other cells. Most other cells have very, uh, very distinct uh, roles that they play and storage is not one of them fat cells are literally built to store. They're built to store energy, but maybe in that effort to store energy, they end up inadvertently storing anything that comes around, toxins included.
0: That was actually the follow-up question. Was was there a specific reason why you were studying diesel fumes or is that just like uh, representative of potentially any type of um, airborne toxin?
1: Yeah. Oh, wonderful question, Ben. In fact, we're not going to stay, we're not going to stick with just diesel exhaust particles. We're going to do uh, cigarette smoke particles as well. So that's just the first step of us kind of identifying two primary inhaled pollutants, you know, diesel exhaust, and then the cigarette smoke. So that'll be the next one.
0: Yeah, that's phenomenal. So I've heard, you know, theories in the past that the reason the body holds onto these or the fat cells hold on to these toxins is ultimately to prevent any type of damage to the nervous system or, you know, the cells in the body. Cause if those things are obviously circulating consistently, there seems like it could potentially cause damage to the neurons or could, could potentially yeah. cause damage specifically to the cells.
1: Yeah, that could be, that could be. Um, but th- then, then we also have to look at the liver because the liver's job is to clear the blood right. of toxins. And ultimately uh, so I would almost say the fat cells, a temporary hold because at one point or another, whatever is stored in a fat cell will come out at one point. It is inevitable because a fat cell, whether it's because the fat cells just shrinking and stuff is being emitted from it, or it's because the fat cell has lived its 10 year life cycle and it will die. And now it will give up what it has. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's going to get into the blood. And so there has to be a way to clear it. And that's when the liver steps in. So the liver is capable of clearing all of these things. and, and But maybe maybe to your point, uh, it could be that the fat cell is just kind of a buffer, which is like, hey, liver, we're not going to overwhelm you with all this stuff. You're clearing some of it. We'll hold on to it, and then we'll give it to you piecemeal.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I'm most fascinated um, in is insulin's role in one, fat storage, um, ultimately fat loss. So my audience mm-hmm. is obviously very... Um, very much interested in like mechanistic fat loss. How do I optimize yeah. this process of fat loss? And I know one of the things that you study a lot is insulin 's role, and you brought that up as far as like one of your your previous or most recent studies and i 'd like to just maybe start going down the path of discerning between um, insulin 's role in fat storage and and, and glucose so there 's a lot I know you do some work with levels and so levels obviously studying blood glucose and people are are placing a lot of value on the numbers of the blood glucose as far as its relevance in fat storage and fat loss and all these other you know potential implications in body composition and i'm curious if you could just discern between uh, insulin's implication or what you know of insulin's implication in in that process as compared to glucose's implication in that process mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah kind of a yeah. broad question
1: but. yeah yeah no it's great so glucose alone has no um fat inducing potential on its own as a nutrient uh, even though it it can be used to build a fat molecule glucose can absolutely be turned into fat the liver does that very very well and so do fat cells i know there's some debate there are many people who say that does not happen to fat cells that is absolutely false categorically false a fat cell is absolutely capable of turning glucose into fat um However, the size of the fat cell matters. I hate for this to be too much of a tangent, so I'll be brief. But when fat cells are smaller, they're able to convert glucose into fatty acids much more readily. When a fat cell is reaching maximum dimension and has hypertrophied, then glucose is providing less of a fuel and the glucose is going to the smaller fat cells. At that point, it's mostly just bringing in fat. But nevertheless, glucose on its own isn't going to stimulate the lipogenic machinery. It has to come with insulin. And of course, in the body, it does. If glucose has come up, insulin is as well. And insulin is now telling the fat cell what to do with the glucose. It's telling every cell what to do with all nutrients, even in the cells where insulin isn't necessary to signal glucose uptake because not all cells need insulin to pull in the glucose many the vast majority of the cells just pull in glucose whenever they want whenever glucose is climbing it just goes into the cells the majority of them except for fat cells and muscle cells where insulin plays a role in mediating that but even still at literally every cell of the body because literally every cell of the body has insulin receptors insulin's kind of thematic effect from head to toe is telling the cells of the body what to do with the energy that they have that's very important for people to realize because there is no capability in any organism from fruit flies to humans and everything in between for an organism to store fat unless insulin is elevated it cannot happen now some people are already misunderstanding what i'm saying so i'm going to clarify what i'm saying but just to make sure i've explained this well it is impossible For an organism to store fat, unless insulin is elevated over fasting levels, it cannot happen. Now, am I saying that insulin is the only cause for for fat gain? No, but it must be part of the equation. There can be, in contrast, no fat growth unless insulin is up, and there can be no fat loss unless insulin is down. Now, there's so much nuance to this that is so lost in these conversations, because immediately, I've had a, had a whole bunch of the audience immediately start to say, oh, Bickman's saying calories don't matter. That is not what I'm saying. In fact, of all the people anyone has heard talk about calories and its role in obesity, I may be, I won't say the most qualified, because that sounds too smug, but one of the most qualified. Because my my actual dissertation and PhD work is in bioenergetics, the explicit study of energy in living organisms. I have a profound appreciation for calories and the laws of thermodynamics. I just think they are invoked very inappropriately in any living system. The laws of thermodynamics were never meant to apply to living organisms because it's too complicated. We are not the closed system of the universe, and it is impossible to account for every movement of every calorie or any energy unit in in the body or any animal for that matter. And maybe I'll riff on that for just a moment.
0: Yeah, please so do. So let, let's,
1: take, let's take, for example, a type 1 diabetic. A type 1 diabetic learns very early that if he or she skips insulin injections, they can eat whatever they want. Literally, they can eat. This is a, a problem called diabulimia, where the diabetic learns, I can eat that chocolate cake. And as long as I don't poke myself with this needle of insulin, I will stay as skinny as I want to. And people will say, "Well, it's because all the excess calories." And literally, Ben, you could have a diabetic eating five thousand calories a day, and they will look scrawny if they're not injecting their insulin.
0: Sorry, just to cut you there. One of my best friends was a type one diabetic. Used to do exactly that. Just lost his leg because of it. So yep. interesting. Yep, so, so that's right. So yep.
1: the consequences are catastrophic. Yep. because they're keep they're in ketoacidosis, and they have hyper, they have glucose levels that are ten times higher than what they should be. And the glucose in particular is going to b- basically start ripping apart blood vessels and, and feeding infections and so losing legs. And so, my, my irreverent kind of dark joke on that is the person will die early or, or have you know, serious health consequences, but they'll look great in their coffin. Yep. They'll be as lean as they want to. But imagine for a moment, everyone listening, just how tempting it is for that person totally. because they don't have to go through the physical pain an embarrassment of say of say bulimia and and i'm in no way speaking lightly on this these are serious topics but with bulimia for example it's the physical discomfort of having to vomit and remove yourself from the social situation and go to the bathroom and you know it, it's terrible it, it is terrible but for the type 1 diabetic they can sit there and eat all of that stuff and they just don't have to poke themselves with a needle oh my gosh how tempting would that be to abuse that reality which is you cannot store fat unless your insulin is elevated. Now, again, as I was starting to mention, people will say, well, all those excess calories are just spilled into the urine as glucose. That is absolutely not true. All that glucose that's coming into the urine, accounting for the increased urine production is just a few hundred calories at most. What people don't appreciate is that when insulin is low, there are multiple variables that create this metabolically elevated state. Which makes it easier to be lean. Now, and that is one, an actual, an actual increase in metabolic rate from, from head to toe. Metabolic rate is we know in humans that have just low insulin, not type one diabetic zero levels, low insulin versus high insulin based on meals, that the, the metabolic rate will differ by 300 calories per day. And so this is the person who has this 300 calorie a day uh, wiggle room. Um, because their metabolic rate is simply higher when insulin is low. And my lab has studied some of the mechanisms for that. And two, when your body is making ketones, ketones are a very unique fuel. First of all, they have about the same caloric value as glucose does. So ketones are energetic molecules, they have a calorie load to them. But when someone has ketones, where they're in ketosis, I won't invoke ketoacidosis at this point, because we're talking about the non-diabetic now. But they are Remember, a ketone is an energetic molecule and they are breathing them out or urinating them out. So when someone's in ketosis, they are exhaling ketones and they're urinating ketones. Every little molecule of the ketone is an energetic, it was a calorie that if we were just trying to invoke the laws of thermodynamics as as they are improperly invoked, we would say that you have to either burn it as energy, so exercise more, or you have to put less in the system or eat less. Well, when you're in ketosis, you've introduced this third mechanism, which is waste. You are literally wasting energy from your body. And so, yes, absolutely, calories matter. In that sense, the laws of thermodynamics are relevant, that you have to account for the energy. It's just when we try to account for the energy and the complexity of the human body, not to mention the complexity of having to wrestle with hunger, which I think is a vastly overlooked aspect, which maybe we can come back to. But nevertheless, calories matter. But if you're trying to understand human obesity just through a caloric lens, you will miss it. All you will do is promote hunger, and that will generally result in a short-lived success. You have to consider the role of insulin because it matters. Absolutely. There can be no fat gain in a human without elevated insulin. It is impossible. There can be no fat loss in a human with, unless insulin is low. It's impossible, yes, calories matter, energy matters, but so too does insulin. We must invoke both of these variables to truly understand. And maybe Ben, if you'll allow me, my one of the reasons I am a little frustrated with the pure kind of caloric theory, if I'm going to straw man that argument, which is just it's purely calories and hormones have nothing to do with it, which is wrong. But if I were to tell the audience uh, that we I've arranged. a a dinner. It's a buffet and the world's best chefs are coming to prepare the most delicious food anyone has ever had. Everyone's invited. It's a buffet. I want you to come and eat as much as you can and just enjoy yourselves. And I would say then what would the people do that I've invited? What would you do to come as hungry as possible to my party? There are two things you would do. You would start eating a little less in the days before the event, and you'd probably start exercising a little more. And sure enough, that is the perfect way to make sure you're hungry. But that's also the advice we've been giving people for 50 years on how to lose weight. We say eat less, exercise more. Yes, it's the perfect recipe for hunger, which means hunger is generally going to win. Now, I'm not saying there's no value in discipline in, in, in you know knowing when you've eaten enough and learning how to push the plate away. But even then, that comes back to this idea of satiety. We need to focus on foods that tell our brain, you're good. You're good. You don't need any more. And we don't have to wait until our stomach is bursting to get there. It's that our, our, our brain knows we are satisfied. And we know from human studies that when insulin is spiked due to consuming refined carbohydrates, that satiety signal is weaker. When insulin is not spiked, like, for example, by focusing on proteins and fats, then satiety is stronger. The satiety signal is, is more prevalent, and thus hunger is controlled longer. So this is, I know I've been ranting for quite a bit, maybe just to kind of bring no, it this back. Is
0: perfect. It's, no, this it's that,
1: good, good. Well, we, we have to consider the effects of insulin. Um, but I, I, I hate to say that because I know that there's always a certain population that immediately Thinks, oh, Bickman's trying to deny calories. I hope I've made that clear. I am uniquely qualified to appreciate energy and, and what it's going to do. But a cell does not know what to do with energy unless it's told. It must be told. Uh, and maybe my, my last point on this we grow fat cells in my lab, like right across the hall here in a little incubator, we have fat cells growing in little petri dishes. These fat cells can be swimming in a sea of fats and glucose or fructose or whatever other nutrients we want to put around them, and they will not grow, not at all. The moment we start bumping up the insulin, boom, now the fat cells start to swell. That is reflective to some degree or another, reflected in every cell of the body. Cells do not inherently know what they need to do with the energy that's around them. Hormones tell the cells what to do.
0: That's so, so valuable. And you you made a lot of things very, very clear for me there. Thank you. And for our listener, I'm sure. Um, So the thing that comes up, and and this may not be something that you care to answer is like, what I mean, obviously, short of minimizing carbohydrate consumption and exercising regularly, is there anything else that comes to mind as far as, you know, um, lifestyle interventions or supplemental interventions that can help people minimize the insulin response of food or, or the insulin response of you know of, of exercise right of I mean, anything that's yeah. causing huge amounts of stress
1: yeah yeah and that's great now in fact let's start with the exercise because i know that's so salient to this audience i am an enormous advocate of exercise there are a few things that are as insulin sensitizing as exercises because you cannot have in fact. Ben, it's interesting. You mentioned levels, and now with the, the rise of the CGM and the, the, the wearing of continuous glucose monitors, anyone who's listening to this who's worn a CGM has noticed that they will go work out. If they hit it hard. Boy, their glucose levels just have yeah. this big, steady climb. One of the reasons, in fact, the entire reason it's climbing is because of changes in hormones. Because again, hormones control fuel use in the body. That's reflected in the glucose in the blood. But this is also a perfect example of. When glucose and insulin get disconnected, exercise is the perfect example, because insulin wants to store energy. Well, that is antithetical to exercise, because exercise wants to use energy. We need to be mobilizing energy and burning energy. Insulin abhors that, and thus, during exercise, it's no surprise that insulin plummets. If someone were wearing a continuous glucose monitor on this arm and a continuous insulin monitor on this arm, may that they come sooner than later... Um, significant technological hurdles to that, but nevertheless, they would see glucose climbing and insulin dropping. And it's because insulin knows this is not my time. I'll come up later today when you eat and recover and I'll help you recover. But right now, I mean, the body, it's always this dynamic system that maybe the simplest way of explaining metabolism in the body is breaking and building, breaking and building. And when we're exercising, we're breaking Insulin can't break. It doesn't break. It only helps build, or and it protects what's being built. That's actually the more accurate way of saying it when it comes to muscle. But nevertheless, glucose comes up in large part because insulin gets out of the way. But at the same time, other hormones that are insulin opposites are climbing during exercise, most especially cortisol, epinephrine or or adrenaline, and glucagon. And then other ones like growth hormone and IGF-1. Especially growth hormone, these first four hormones that I mentioned, cortisol, adrenaline, glucagon, um, growth hormone, they are all insulin antagonists when it comes to glucose. Every one of these hormones stimulates glucose production and release from the liver into the blood, driving the elevated glucose because they're all to a degree. Well, growth hormone is a bit of an interesting one, but they want to mobilize energy. Uh, They want to start moving things into the body to be used for energy. And 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 so we have this increase in glucose during exercise while insulin has come down. And so, but one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I'm such a big advocate of exercise. In addition to that, if someone's performing exercises that are going to failure in some way or another, the intensity is sufficient. Then they're getting you know a strong signal for muscle hypertrophy, which which you and much of your audience, honest to goodness, knows more about than I do. Um, but more muscle mass means more of the tissue that consumes most of the glucose in the body. So when someone eats, if you and I were to go eat a bagel right now and we're wearing our CGMs, yep, boom, our glucose has come up and then it starts to come down. 80% of the reason the glucose starts to come down is because the glucose is being pulled into the muscle. So if someone has more muscle mass, they have more of this glucose sink. They have this very high metabolic rate organ that will gobble up much of the glucose from the blood. And the faster that glucose can come down, well, then the faster the insulin can come back down. And the longer a person is living a life with low insulin, the longer they're going to be insulin sensitive. Now, of course, insulin does help build, which is, and, and so we want it to be going up sometimes. And, and so like everything else in the body, like mTOR and like growth hormone and IGF-1, we need these periods of an, anabolism or building. And then we need periods of breaking. If, uh, it's funny because a lot of people invoke mTOR nowadays for better or for worse, but mTOR is a primary protein signal uh, for, or for protein synthesis, a primary signal for protein synthesis. But if mTOR is chronically turned on, the cell stops responding to it. And then you have this uncontrollable decay or catabolism of muscle protein. And And so mTOR, like every signal in the body to be healthy and work well, it needs to be on and then off, on and then off. And the same thing goes with insulin and insulin sensitivity. The problem is, most people are living their lives in a chronically elevated state of insulin. They eat the starchy, sugary meal for breakfast, and then two hours later, before the insulin has come down, they do it again, and then lunch, et cetera, et cetera. And the longer insulin is elevated, the more the body becomes resistant to
0: it. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back to the show after a quick message from our sponsor. All right, ladies and gents, today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at BiOptimizers. They have done it again with a ketogenic optimization product. If you're someone who's consuming uh, fat, if you're someone who's consuming a ketogenic diet, optimization of digestion, absorption, assimilation is incredibly important. Capex is the product that was designed to rev up your cellular metabolism, ultimately energy production, energy capacity, specifically from fat. The ingredients in this product are all specifically chosen to optimize the ketogenic state, optimizing mitochondrial energy production, uh, optimizing the delivery of the fat into the mitochondria and ultimately helping with the breakdown of the fats. And ultimately just so you feel really, really great on a ketogenic diet. It's got some great, um, astragalus in there. It's got some panics, ginseng, some things to help help with brain function and metabolism. So our friends over at Bioptimizers are going to offer you guys 10% off and you can use the code MUSCLE10 when you head over to kenergize.com. That's the word energize with a K in the beginning, dot com slash muscle to get hooked up with 10% off. You can go directly to energize to get hooked up with Capex. If you're someone who's on a ketogenic diet, I highly suggest this product. If you're just consuming a lot of fat and maybe you feel like you're not super energized. One of the things people often talk about when they start a ketogenic diet is the so-called keto flu, which is also just, or often just the absence of the ability to produce energy fast enough from fat. Some of us have a sluggish metabolism. We don't usually produce um, energy well from fat in the beginning until your body adapts and becomes more effective at using fat for fuel, using Capex to kind of bridge the gap would be a great idea. You can also head over to buyoptimizers.com and use the code muscle ten to get hooked up there as well. So again, that's Kennergize with energized with K.com or just go to bioptimizers.com and all of their products are available there. Uh, enjoy the podcast with Dr. Ben Bickman. So you said insulin sensitivity, and I think it, I would love to go down the path of that. So when we speak of optimizing insulin sensitivity, obviously, periods of decreased insulin secretion is is vital. But mm-hmm. is that kind of the, the primary approach? So if someone yeah. has, let's say they've had chronically elevated insulin for 20 years due to just chronic consumption of calories and they want to reestablish their insulin sensitivity as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, wonderful, wonderful question. So I say that there are three primary causes for insulin resistance. to so the opposite, which is a very, very prominent problem. In in a way, Ben. If I were to say, what is my like one professional mission? In life, of course, my real mission is healthy, happy wife and healthy, happy kids. But if my one professional mission, it would be to make more people aware of insulin resistance. It is the single most common disorder, literally in the world. I mean, the reason I've given talks throughout Europe and the Middle East and in in throughout Asia is because of the the prevalence of this problem. So, insulin resistance is public enemy number one, there are three primary causes. And when I say primary, I use that term very deliberately because it has been shown these three causes that I'll elaborate on in a moment. It has been shown to be true in isolated cells, like the cell cultures, like in the muscle cells and the fat cells I have in my lab right now. It's been shown to prove out in rodent models in labs and in humans, the pinnacle of all life forms. So in all of these biomedical models, these three causes of insulin resistance play out, which is why I call them primers. One of them is stress. And by stress, I mean the elevated stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline. Cortisol and adrenaline do cause insulin resistance. And so if a person is having, uh, they're elevated for too long due to say some anxiety, anxiety or some physical stress, like they're overtraining and they're not sleeping well enough sleep lack of sleep causes an increase in those stress hormones regardless of the cause that those will promote insulin resistance inflammation and and that's an overused term as i mentioned earlier and i try to use it very deliberately but basically if immune pathways in cells are turned on those cells will become insulin resistant and this is um, whether it's an autoimmune disease When the autoimmunity is active, a person will have manifest insulin resistance. If a person is fighting an infection and they're ill, they will have uh, demonstrable insulin resistance. The reason I don't emphasize those as much is because those are very tricky. Of these three levers, and then the last one being chronically elevated insulin, of these three levers we have, if I were to tell someone, if you and I were talking to someone and we said, well, your stress hormones are causing your insulin resistance, and they would say, well, how do I lower my stress hormones? We would say, well, we don't really know. You know, it's hard to know. Maybe you're not sleeping well. Maybe you have too much anxiety at work. Maybe you're overtraining. We don't know. It's a, it's a lever that's up. All these levers are turned on causing insulin resistance. This one's a really difficult one to grab. It's really slippery. And so we say, well, let's move to the next one. Inflammation. Well, it's kind of like the first one. Because if we say, well, you have elevated inflammation because of your autoimmunity or food sensitivity, well, so well, how can I lower that? Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we can try a few things. It's difficult to really grab that lever and yank it down. The insulin lever, you can literally change in 24 hours. Even if a person has lived a life 20 years, as you said, in a state of chronically elevated insulin, one day of fasting or strict low carb will start to bring that down. Um, And and in fact, Ben, this is something, especially fasting. I know that's a double-edged sword. And so you, you have to be smart about it. But Dr. Jason Fung, he published papers looking at people who had had type 2 diabetes, which is just basically a severe version of insulin resistance for years and were on multiple medications. And within just weeks, within it, within a day, they have to, they have to, um, lower all of their insulin medications because in type 2 diabetes, you're making your own insulin. You've just become so sensitive to insulin in just one day that they have to stop giving them their doses, their, their shots of insulin. Now, I'm not giving anyone any medical advice, of course, but the insulin lever is one that you can grasp and grasp with both hands and just one day of fasting or really strict low carb, and the insulin starts to come down. Give it two days and it's come down even more. And so that is why I focus on that one the most. Not that the other two don't matter, they do. In fact, I've literally published papers on both of them, but the insulin one I think matters the most because we can change it the most.
0: One thing you brought up in there that I'm curious, and it's kind of off topic, but you may be you may be uniquely able to answer this question. So, everyone in the longevity space is going down the path of mTOR, and I'm wow. curious, and I'm cu- curious what your thoughts are uh, with respect to just mTOR being you know significantly implicated in in um, demonized, we'll say, in the yep. longevity space.
1: Yep, yep. Ben, <clears throat> I'm going to be diplomatic about it by saying it's moronic. How's that no. for diplomatic? <laughs> it is absolutely <laughs> yeah. a fool's errand. So this evidence is born from, it started with fruit flies and has now, in all sincerity, the first evidence implicating mTOR longevity came from fruit flies, these teeny little specks mm-hmm. of insects. And then it was, it was followed up, and there's evidence in, in mice to, to confirm this. If you keep mTOR inhibited, there's some evidence to suggest that the animal will live a little longer, the organism will live a little longer in these nice, perfectly controlled environments. <clears throat> What people don't want to mention is that as you restrict the um, mTOR, restrict dietary protein in particular, and and that's because that's what everyone focuses on, right? They say you got to eat less protein and that keeps mTOR turned off and then you're going to live longer. There is no evidence in humans to support that. Not one single shred of evidence supports like in an actual clinical intervention way that if you eat less protein, your mTOR will be turned off and you'll live longer not one. That is very important for people to know. And the the reality of it is quite simple because you cannot do longevity studies in humans. You cannot follow a human for 80 years and see what happens to them. It is impossible to do. They've somewhat relied on correlational evidence, but I'll try to remember to come back to that in just a second before I go too far. To come back to the other animals where they have explicitly inhibited mTOR by, for example, restricting protein to some degree, Remember, these are perfectly controlled little environments where there's no danger, there's no need to run away or defend yourself. And so if you're losing muscle mass, it doesn't matter because you will lose muscle mass. And in humans, we know that muscle mass is one of the greatest predictors of longevity or squaring off the curve, if you will, rather than dying this slow, decaying death. You're fit, 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 capable, fit, capable, fit, and boom, you die, you get sick. That, and, and, and your longevity is just the same as anyone else. So maintaining muscle mass is key for human longevity. But even still, back to the lower organisms, it's a hell of a trade-off. Someone who wants to live longer has to ask themselves, do I care to sacrifice my libido? Because fertility plummets in these animals. They basically live longer at the expense of sexual um involvement or sexual function i'm not sure what the word is because i'm not the right scientist to explain explain it but we know it happens fertility plummets these are rodent colonies that stop having babies well then what's what the hell what's the point and maybe i don't mean to be so animated about this so i'll try to no. you know, settle down a little <laughs> least, bit but i feel least. very strongly yeah. i feel very strongly and maybe it's because i'm a family man but what's the point of living longer uh, if, if you are losing your muscle and you're less physically capable and you can't spend it uh, with the people you love, you know, like if you have sacrificed your ability to physically perform daily activities of life because you've been stripped of your muscle and you've sacrificed your ability to reproduce, well, then what's the point? You know, uh, what are you I doing?
0: Agree. You're agree just more.
1: filling up space. Um, but, but again, there's no evidence for this in humans. All of this is from the road work, but we have to invoke that. Because the same people who are invoking the longevity, oh, you know, these animals lived a few extra months. Yeah, but at what cost? They're less physically capable and they're less able to reproduce. It's because the body is basically saying, hey, you're not getting enough protein. You, you're not able to, this is not a good environment because we need protein to survive. Yeah. You're not getting enough of it. So let's turn off reproduction One
0: because of this research- is not
1: a good environment.
0: One of your recent posts on social media was um, with respect to consuming animal products. I'd love to have you just kind of discuss that because the conversation obviously around low-protein veganism comes up and you know, uh, there's tons of people just just tooting the horn of veganism saying that's the, way, the path to longevity. We recently made a post saying the value of animal products.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So more and more, uh, it, it, Ben, it's, really, it's very gratifying to see <clears throat> um, data coming to light. Um, even old data that hadn't been shared before because the, the almost scientific environment was antagonistic. So we have lived through decades now of absolute and even still absolutely demonizing meat. All of those studies are based on correlational studies. And I'm sure everyone listening understands the difference. A correlational study is the kind of study where you go into a community and you say, hey, can you please answer this questionnaire of, of what you eat, what you ate the last seven days? Well, that's that's pretty bloody flawed, right? I mean, that's deeply flawed research. Not only that, they compound that because now they go to the medical records of that same community or country and they say, what were the causes of death? Oh, well, here we go. People who ate more meat um, in these same communities where they ate more meat, they had more cancer, for for example. And more and more, there are bigger and bigger studies that just come in and beat that idea to death. There is simply no compelling evidence. The only evidence that ever existed was correlational, which is the same as saying it's a coincidence, but there's also coincidental or correlational evidence to suggest that eating meat not only doesn't promote early death, but in fact, promotes longevity. And you see this, if we can get our head up out of the sand, we start to see this for what it is. Because you look at red meat consumption over the past 100 years, we're eating less red meat now than we were 100 years ago. 100 years ago, we were not dying from cancer. It just wasn't happening. And so if you think you look at cancer rates, for example, and how they're climbing and heart disease, how it's climbing, that does not jive with red meat because if red meat was the cause or any meat, you would expect to see the meat consumption following that same line, and it doesn't. It's going the opposite direction. It doesn't work. Even, even at just a lazy level, you can see it for what it is. It does not work. Humans, I, I, uh, you know Ben, allow me to be silly for just a moment. Not silly, not silly to me, but it might be silly to other people. Clearly, I'm very religious, unapologetically. I, one of the things, one of my heroes is the ancient apostle Paul in the New Testament. Just let me go on for just 30 seconds, I promise. It has a point. I love Paul. He was super strong. In, in his wording, didn't suffer fools, you know, my kind of guy. I just told you, told it how, how it is. He said in one of these scriptures that he said he was kind of prophesying of the latter days, our days, I would say. And he said one of the signs of the latter days is that people will command to abstain from eating meat. I mean, this was an explicit verse in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 for anyone who wants to flip open the Bible go read first Timothy chapter four. And it is so compelling. And so as a religious guy, I look at this and think, Oh man, all of these calls that go on every level, every celebrity, every medical entity, every university, every, you know, uh, apparently educated individual is saying, don't eat meat, don't eat meat, don't eat meat. And I think about the apostle Paul, you know, almost 2000 years ago, looking at this and saying, boy, I see that. I see that happening. And, and it's not, it's not good. Like he, he calls it, uh, he said that it's people who've been seduced by the spirits of devils. Now, I'm not going to go that far. Right. But I do think, now, if I were to step away from that religious tangent for just a moment, I worry about this call to avoid meat. Um, knowing what I know about human nutrition and the essential nature of animal products in proper human nutrition, I worry about the call to avoid all any and all meat, because I think that is all that's going to do is make people sick and weak. And, and so nice. my priority for me personally, as a middle-aged guy who wants to have a physical, uh, physically capable body for my children and my future grandchildren. And as a husband, as a father, where I look at my children, and want my children to be physically capable and strong. Meat is the, the absolute primor- priority in my home. And we try to buy it local. I'm connected with a bunch of, of the local little ranchers here. And so I think there's ways to be responsible with it. But I think that there's there's this idea, Ben, that there's maybe a deeper philosophy that if we don't eat animals, we don't contribute to any suffering. That's unfortunately a very childish view. It's very naive uh, because everything that is alive on this earth today benefits and lives because of something that died. Every living thing, whether it's plant or animal, every living thing is alive because of something that died. Whether it is the soybeans that people are eating and getting their protein from, it was fertilized with nutrients that came from carcasses of animals or the dead animal matter in the soil itself, or whether it is a human eating an animal that ate a plant, it doesn't matter. It Everything and it's, so maybe to say that another way, uh, it, it takes a, maybe a degree of maturity to acknowledge that reality, that something I'm eating something that died for yep. me, maybe even. And so whether it was you killed the plant to eat it or whether you've killed an animal to eat it, even the plant lived because it lived on a, by killing an animal, not killing the animal, but living because of the dead animal and being nourished by that dead animal. So the plant may be more carnivore than some vegans are, um, but it, it's a kind of a naive view. Now I know it's very complicated, and so I'm trying to be polite. But I think the further a human goes from eating animal products, the further they get, the more nutrient deficient they will become.
0: I agree, and there's there's a lot of speculative um, agendas behind it, right? There's you know we could we could go down the rabbit hole for sure, but we won't. Yep. Um, I'm curious again, going back to the mTOR conversation, how insulin and overall caloric oh, yeah. load is implicated in mTOR. Because I, I think I like, nobody's been able to explain mTOR to me and I just want to take yeah. advantage of your... Oh, yeah. Yeah, no,
1: no, that's great. In fact, thanks for kind of bringing me back. <laughs> yeah. Um, Pastor Ben is, is done for the moment. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought, that, brought us back to mTOR because I did actually want to touch on insulin. Um, the, the focus has been how amino acids will uh, increase. So mTOR, just to maybe go back to bare bones, mTOR is kind of the critical mediator for promoting muscle protein synthesis. So any signal that's coming to the muscle, whether it is insulin or IGF-1, it doesn't, or even anabolic steroids in order to, or or I shouldn't say it that way, like testosterone, I should have said it that way because it doesn't need to, I don't need to invoke something like that. Um, But, Whatever the signal is to promote growth, it goes through mTOR. mTOR is this critical mediator that must be activated. And then upon its activation, it basically starts taking these amino acids. It basically starts telling the cell, make proteins that are involved in in the growth of the structure. Now, if we're talking about the muscle cell, mTOR is now saying, make proteins that are involved in the uh, actin myosin filaments. And then as we make more and more actin myosin filaments, the muscle cell has hypertrophied and strength and capacity and power has gone up. Um, So mTOR must be turned on for that. But I mentioned earlier that if mTOR is turned on too much, it loses that that signal starts to literally decay. It starts to break down because constant stimulus results in a resistance to that stimulus. That is a fundamental biological principle. And so the key then for mTOR is the cyclical activation kind of back to that idea that I mentioned earlier of building and breaking, building and breaking. But the idea with muscle growth is you build and break, build, break, build, break. And that is resulting in that dynamic pattern is nevertheless going up. But you cannot go up unless you first go down. It has to be that dynamic increasing direction. Now, to come back to insulin, the nice thing about, before I say, mention insulin, the nice thing about amino acids is that amino acids will elicit a very acute compressed activation of mTOR. Leucine, which is the strongest mTOR activator, which is in fact the only branched chain amino acid that actually facilitates um, muscle protein synthesis, the other two are actually not um, not helpful. Leucine is the one. So let's just use leucine. Leucine will activate mTOR, and then it's turned off. It's a a nice rapid compressed activation. Insulin doesn't do that. When insulin comes to a cell, even a muscle cell, it will activate mTOR, and leucine in the blood is up and down in about 45 minutes. Not so with insulin. Insulin will come up and it'll stay elevated for three hours. During that whole time, mTOR can't turn off. And so if if mTOR, I'll say it this way, if mTOR matters for longevity, that's a huge if. We clearly know we need some mTOR activation for muscle and bone mass. We have to have it. So we can't just turn it off entirely. We would literally just waste away and die. The key then perhaps to mTOR is turning it on and off. Well, amino acids from proteins do that very well, on and off, on and off. Insulin doesn't. When insulin is elevated, mTOR is on. And the problem with insulin is what I mentioned earlier. A person wakes up in the morning, insulin is down and mTOR is down. And they immediately eat a starchy, sugary breakfast, and they've skyrocketed their insulin. And then insulin is elevated for about three to four hours before it comes all the way back to baseline. Well, unfortunately, we don't even give it that long. Right when insulin has started cresting, usually people go and eat some kind of mid-morning snack and then lunch, et cetera, like I mentioned earlier. So the average individual is spending every waking moment in a state of elevated insulin. That is never giving mTOR an opportunity to turn off. So perhaps, maybe, if mTOR is relevant to longevity, that is promoting a shortened lifespan, perhaps, but it also would start to work against you with regards to muscle growth, because you have to allow mTOR to turn off. Otherwise, the muscle never has the chance to heal. It never has the chance to go in or to, to break first. You have to break, and then you, rec- you repair bigger and stronger. If mTOR is turned on, you're never really allowing that process to go
0: hugely insightful thank you so one thing that comes up there is um, other things that may cause insulin spikes and and i'm curious you know you know just kind of a blunt question how much is stress actually causing insulin to go up so obviously we know it causes glucose to go up but is there a, is there an insulin response with that as well so for example if i'm you know not sleeping well or if i'm um i don't be subjected to any stress i don't think we covered that like i know we get a glucose response but because of the absence of exercise, does that mean there has to be a corresponding insulin response? Yeah.
1: Yeah. G- wonderful question. So there's kind of two phases to this. So if, if, if we had human subjects come into my lab and we dose them with a load of, of a cortisol molecule, for example, you know cortisol being like the prototypical stress hormone, there would be two time periods to this. The first would be a direct inhibition of insulin. Cortisol will come to the beta cells of the pancreas and inhibit insulin production thereby allowing glucose to come up very rapidly, which is what its primary job is. Indeed, cortisol is so determined to increase glucose that it will destroy every cell of the body, including all of the protected proteins in muscle in order to get to the carbon bones, the carbon skeletons to turn it into glucose. So cortisol is so determined that it will literally destroy the body to get more glucose. Nevertheless, coming back to this, during that first bolus of cortisol. Cortisol will go up. It will directly inhibit insulin production, allowing glucose to come up. On its own, that would be benign. Cortisol would be cleared away. Insulin would come back up. But as that signal of cortisol keeps coming into the body, say due to stress, then the insulin starts to fight back. It starts to push back against this hyperglycemia and the kind of inhibition by cortisol. And now what was a peaceful, it wasn't a fight because insulin just retreated to the corner. Now insulin insists on getting back into the ring now you have insulin resistance. So you don't really have insulin resistance in the first phase of this. You just have insulin inhibition. Now you get insulin resistance. So this is very manifest. When someone is taking a cortisol molecule to control the inflammation of an autoimmune disease, for example, they will start to rapidly gain weight. And that's because insulin is fighting back and starting to climb. And when insulin gets elevated, fat cells start to grow.
0: Amazing. So... Another question with respect to the insulogenic nature of proteins. So obviously we're going to consume animal products and I'm curious how much research you've looked, you've, you've looked at as far as, you know, comparing beef and and maybe chicken and fish and eggs and whey protein um, as far as its ability to spike insulin itself.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful question. This is something that I've thought an enormous amount about over the years. In fact, um, I, I anyone who wants to learn more than the answer I'm about to give, I would encourage you just go do a web browser search for Bickman and do do like something like Bickman protein glucagon, and probably the first YouTube hit will be a talk that I gave at an event about um, the relevance of what I call the in, well, I, not just me others have called it before me um, the insulin to glucagon ratio when it comes to dietary protein. So protein does elicit or more specifically the amino acids from protein does do in fact elicit an insulin release so that's absolutely true no question the question is the degree of that release what is the amplitude of that or the, the 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 just what's the stimulus and how high does insulin actually get when someone eats pure protein in the absence of a glucose load and assuming blood glucose levels are are normal then there is an increase in insulin but it's much more modest than it would be otherwise, which I'll come to in a moment. And it's m- matched by an equal to or greater than release of glucagon. And that yeah. matters because whereas insulin wants to store energy, and I mentioned the glucagon earlier, it, glucagon is kind of insulin's perfect opposite. It's the yang to the yin. Whereas insulin wants to store energy, glucagon wants to burn it. Insulin wants to store fat. Glucagon wants to burn fat. Insulin wants to lower glucose. Glucagon wants to increase glucose. So whatever insulin does, glucagon's doing the opposite. And that matters because if we were talking about the insulin spike in its regards to potentially promoting fat gain, well, it matters that if you eat pure protein, like let's just say pure whey, yep, you've gotten an insulin spike, but the glucagon matched it. And so we've had this similar, that's why people invoked the insulin to glucagon ratio originally, because to truly understand the metabolic effects of insulin, you have to look at the factors that are trying to counter insulin. Now, if someone ate pure, if you and I went back to eating that bagel, our insulin to glucagon ratio would skyrocket. Glucagon comes down and insulin goes up. If we were to go and eat pure fat, we just ate a spoonful of butter, it actually goes in the opposite direction. Insulin doesn't move, but glucagon does. Uh, and, and so we've actually reduced the insulin, the glucagon ratio. This is basically the body's way of saying, hey, I don't have insulin to tell me to store energy, but because I'm taking in energy, higher glucagon is telling the body, hey, we're burning. We're burning right now. We've had energy come in and we can't store it. So we got to burn it. We got to increase metabolic rate. We got to make ketones to start wasting some energy. We got to somehow reconcile the laws of thermodynamics without storing it because insulin is low. And so we can't. So we have a a lower insulin to glucagon ratio. Now, when someone eats pure protein, it goes the same. However, if you eat protein with carbohydrate, you take the carbohydrate insulin to glucagon ratio, which was here, and you actually expand it. You push the insulin up even higher. So when protein is consumed with glucose, it amplifies the insulin effect of the glucose. When protein is consumed with fat, it doesn't do anything. It kind of stays in that same range. I think that is very important because in nature, ex- with one exception, protein and carbohydrate never come together in any substantial amount except milk. Mammal milk is high in all three macronutrients unlike anything else on the planet. And I thus, it's a perfect cocktail for mommy mammal to make to give to baby mammal to help baby mammal grow as quickly as possible. So milk is the... like. Optimal fuel for growth because it is high in all macronutrients. Everything you need for growth, boom, it's right there. Have at it. But other than that, protein and carbohydrate do not come together. Now, in our hubris, we have pulled out protein either from plants that never really intended to make it or we've isolated it from animal protein, animal foods, and removed the fat. And then we'll put it with carbohydrate. I don't think that's the optimal way of taking it. Now, I am, you know, I said, I think, I don't think it is. What I think is the way that nature brings it, which is there is no exception to this. Protein always comes with fat. Always. No exceptions. Literally zero in all of nature. There's no instance in which protein comes alone. It always comes with fat. There's just the exception of dairy, which is it comes also with carbohydrate. But every other source is just protein and fat. And that's how we should take it. You digest it better. Um, which is why I'm not an advocate of just pure protein, pure um, weight. When, when, when we eat fat, we also release bile acids or bile salts into the intestines, and they accelerate the proteolytic enzymes of digestion, and you literally digest the proteins better. And this could be why we know from human studies that protein alone, while it can elicit some degree of muscle protein synthesis following exercise training, protein and fat will go beyond it. So protein and fat, um, are anabolic and the most anabolic and even things like omega-3s omega-3 fatty acids on their own are are anabolic and and so we always look at protein as being the anabolic nutrient and and that's appropriate but so too is fat
0: i mean this is so valuable i'm curious what question i should be asking that i'm not if there's anything that we missed that you're like hey this would be very relevant in this case
1: um no we've covered some great topics uh, and and i always appreciate being able to rant a little bit, and you know, pardon me for some of my bizarre tangents here. That's great. Um, but it's yeah. I mean, human nutrition is complicated, and and uh, you've asked the right questions. And maybe if I just kind of end with a sentiment. I the older I get, the stronger I feel that we are meant to eat animal foods, and I worry about my children and their their contemporaries. Not to mention my and your contemporaries who have really bought into this idea. Of of kind of this almost Garden of Eden type world that we are not supposed to eat animals. Humans aren't supposed to eat animals. I, I just I vehemently oppose that idea. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we, if we nothing had to die? Well, that'd be glorious. That's just not reality. And so we need to train our children and each other to just appreciate that the world is complicated. Things die all the time, and everything that is alive is living because of something that died. And and rather than apologize for it we should just appreciate it
0: yeah i'm in complete agreement and um it seems like and i'm sure you'll acknowledge is that our our culture of society has been removed from death we just push it away and pretend it's not there to include humans right it's like it's this incredibly traumatic thing when people die and maybe it is but in the same breath Maybe we celebrate it, right? Maybe we, we we've just kind of feels like we've lost touch with the reality of our existence, right? The reality of our existence is we're all going, right? Oh, yeah. I think, I think as a child, certainly I was removed from that and I, I'm doing my best to... Um, you know, bring it back into reality. So it's it's less about the pain of loss and more about the celebration of what was and the contribution to humanity. And I think that in of itself starts for me has started to change my perspective on death, whether it be of animals or humans or anything. Like I I, I want to make it um celebrated, right? Not not mm-hmm. again. That sounds odd, but um, you know, if I'm gonna hunt and kill an animal, I'm I'm not gonna. Um, not acknowledge its sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice for me, right? If my parents passed away, I'm not going to not sit there and appreciate and acknowledge the ultimate sacrifice, you know, ultimately bringing me into this world. And uh, I think, yeah, I think as, as a culture, there's a lot of nuance there that should be explored. I'm certainly not an expert in that topic, but uh, yeah, for me personally, same. it's been useful to, um, I think personally useful to just acknowledge and appreciate what, uh, you know, the cycle of life,
1: yeah yeah well said, yeah, that's right. yeah there is life is complicated, and the more mature and and aware we are of it, I think just the better prepared we are, certainly the better prepared our kids can be, because we think I think I look at the fight that we're facing now and all the pressure to, I would say, deny human nature in that sense, um now, there's some aspects of human nature that ought to be denied. you know we're cruel, you know vindictive, selfish little beasts, but it's just the reality of what our organism is and what it needs for survival. Uh, I, I look at kind of the attack on that reasoning and, and, and the, the, the human body in many, many ways is kind of under attack in, in a lot of ways from infancy to, to seniority. But yeah, I mean, there is the constant challenge of making sure that we are aware and that we check our biases and that we're not too cynical uh, about things, but it, despite all the negatives, boy, there's a lot to live for and and it's not like neither you nor i are reveling in death we revel in life and and accept the reality of death and 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 it's a, it's a complicated nuanced discussion
0: yeah I and mean, i think it lets me live every day to its fullest when i do keep arms uh, or death at arms length right it's just like it's there and yep. it's inevitable and it allows me to appreciate the moments and the people and the good and the bad, right? The challenges and the opportunities within everything. But Dr. Whitman, thank you so much for being here. You made an incredible product that um, many of our listeners need to be aware of or should be aware of as far as a supplement you and your brothers have created to support people who maybe are busy, support people who are looking for high quality nutrition uh, in a supplemental form. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. Thanks so much. Yeah. It's, it's been so neat for me. Uh, so a, a couple of years ago, I was looking — you know, uh, everyone's heard my message now. in my primary dietary message is, control carbohydrates, which isn't to say, "Don't eat them, but just be smart about them. Prioritize protein and don't fear fat, especially the fat that comes with protein. That can be difficult to manage sometimes. So yep, as you noted, um, along with a couple of my brothers, we created this family business to, in my view, create you know just the best meal replacement shake. Now, I am a huge advocate of beef. And, and so I'm not saying, boy, drink the Health Code shake and not beef. But there's something to be said for the convenience of of this kind of grab and go. But anyone who wants to learn more about it, it's just a shake that's lower in carbohydrates, matched in protein and fat like an egg is. It's matched um, by mass with protein to fat. But it's if it, they go to the website, get health, and that's uh, get G E T and then H L T H, gethealth.com.
0: Amazing. And uh, I've tried it. I love it. It's a wonderful product. And we will definitely link to that in the show notes and to where our audience can find you. We'll link to your Instagram. We'll link to your health code site and ultimately link to, if there's a site from the website, from your um, university site, that'd be wonderful to see. We'll link to the YouTube video you mentioned as well.
1: And my book, go buy my book. If anyone wants to learn more about insulin resistance, go look up the book, just go Amazon or anywhere books are sold, why we get sick. It's just all about insulin resistance, what it is, where it comes from, what to do about it.
0: Love it. Thanks, Dr. Bickman. I appreciate you. Thanks, man. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. As I said, so much value, so much incredible information. There was a lot of light shed for me on some of these common myths and common mistakes that are being preached around the world. Like, hey, macros are the only thing that matter. Hey, it's calorie in, calorie out. Well, as you hear from Dr. Bickman himself, uh, that is definitely not the case. And it's also he's also dispelling some myths around longevity and mTOR. And people, some people are saying, hey, protein is good and protein is bad. And you hear it right here from the horse's mouth. And of course, there's a lot of different mechanisms and potential implications, right? Protein consumption is not just about protein accumulation and muscle building. There's so much more going on in your body that ultimately involves protein. Uh, but this is one very, very useful perspective that I will definitely take with me and apply to my optimization protocol. Calls. today's podcast guys thank you very much to buy optimizers our, our show sponsor for today specifically during the month of may we're we're featuring the product capex that's k A P E X, Um, and this is specifically designed for people on a ketogenic diet, ultimately who want to optimize the body's ability to consume and burn fat for fuel. So if you're someone who's on a ketogenic diet, head over to kenergize.com, that's K-E-N-E-R-G-I-Z-E.com. Use the code MUSCLE to get hooked up with, actually, sorry, it's MUSCLE10 to get hooked up with 10% off. This podcast is also brought to you by our friends over at Ned. Hello, Ned.com to get hooked up with the highest quality hemp derived CBD on the market. Support our amazing sponsors for today because they hook us up. They allow us to continue to produce this incredible podcast and have amazing guests like Dr. Bickman. Ladies and gents, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. If you did enjoy this podcast, I would appreciate it if you left us a review. And if you share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who ultimately needs this information and wants to live their greatest life in a body that they absolutely love. Peace out. Have a great one. We'll see you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode.